Today's teaching is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. We're going to read those verses. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Hope you're doing well. We are preaching through the book of Matthew, and um, as we've been preaching through the book of Matthew, <clears throat> as I was kind of planning out this kind of mini-series inside of the book of Matthew, chapters 11 and 12, which is doubt and denial, uh, I was coming upon, upon this, this text here, 15 through 21, and I wasn't sure, you know, where to put it. You know, I think, well, okay, I'm reading through 1 through, through 14, and I'm thinking, all right, it, maybe it fits with 1 through 14, and I'll just do in 12, 1 through 21, all in one Sunday. And that, 21 verses, if you know me, is quite a bit. Um, but it wasn't necessarily fitting in there, so I was like, well, probably it's going to go with the other section. I'll go 15 you know, through you know, maybe 32, and I'll just put it there. And it, it, it kind of kept standing out, not that it doesn't flow. Obviously, Matthew knows what he's doing, and he flowed, you know, put this in the right place. But I was trying to think how we're going to preach through this, because I want to take section by section that make logical sense for us. And really, this just kind of stands out on its own, um, 15 through 21 by itself. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today is 15 through 21. Um, now, here's the thing about this text. This text is really about Jesus and, and not really about you or I at all. And so whenever we have these kinds of texts where this is just a lot of information and stuff about Christ, um, that's good, but on a preaching perspective, sometimes that's difficult for me to think, okay, well, if that's the case, then how do I, how do I make some application for everybody? Because in seminary, whenever I was in seminary, um, one of the things that was kind of deeply pressed to me in preaching class is that every sermon has to have application. And if it doesn't have application, then it doesn't really count as a sermon, or at least it doesn't count as a very good sermon. And so um, I'm thinking about that and trying to think through this. I was like, how do you talk about that? And so um, I remembered a, uh, a pastor once said about four years after I got into seminary, and I learned that there's you know rules that exist, and then rules exist to kind of be broken a little bit here and there. Um, there was a pastor who had just... Uh, preached through Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 is where it talks about Isaiah seeing the Lord seated on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple with his glory, you know, that kind of, that sermon. And so he says, I decided when I was going to preach the text about the glory of God, just being able, Isaiah just seeing the glory of God, he said, I decided I was, when I was going to preach that, that I was not going to preach it with any application at all, without any direct application. He simply just wanted to um, preach Isaiah 6, talking about seeing the glory of the king. And as he did that, he was wanting to see if that would be enough in and of itself to ignite the congregation's heart towards worship or hearts for Jesus. And he said, a couple months later, as I was, you know, going through on Sunday, a couple approached me who had just lost a newborn child. And they said they had been going through a pretty rough time. And one of the single things that God had been using to get them through that time was the sermon that he preached on Isaiah 6, where there was no direct application. He just amplified the sovereignty and glory of God. And they said that just seeing 
the, the sovereign glory of God was enough for them that they were using that and that text was helping them through one of the toughest times in their life. And so um, we've come to, I think, a pretty difficult text this morning, at least an interesting text, um, where there's not, little, there's not a lot of application. There's very little, if any, direct application at all. But it doesn't mean that the text isn't full of beautiful, and I mean extraordinarily beautiful gems about Jesus. And I think what I'm hoping for is as we look, about, look at this text that talks about Jesus, who he is, and we just get to kind of see on display the beautiful character of Christ, I'm hoping that it's going to be enough for us um, in this kind of, and I'm the same way, give me something to do society. I'm hoping that just seeing him is going to be enough that as we look about it, it's going to expand, it's going to enlarge our appreciation for Christ and have much more far-reaching effects than maybe we would think it would have in just kind of one single hearing on one single morning. So that's, that's really what I'm praying for this morning. As we're going to look at a text that's about Jesus and just how great and glorious he is, I'm hoping that even though there not, might not be a direct application, so therefore go out and do this, there's not much of that, that is just going to ignite your heart to see his character and his glory and to see how beautiful he is. And, and as we look at some of the things specific to his ministry here, that we're going to be excited about who he is and that it would want to send us on as worshipers out of here. Um, my, my kids come to the first service and my daughter, my oldest daughter, I just got to share this because I thought it was awesome. She on, on, on the little kid sheet, and some of y'all might need this. It says, draw a picture of what you learned. Um, that's a kid. That's just, I'm just all right. Uh, so it had a picture of her and had a heart and it had a picture of Jesus. And she said, this is me from this sermon trying to fall more in love with Jesus. If there was, that's the perfect thing that I want today. I want you to draw a picture of yourself in a heart and just say, I'm hoping that this sermon helps me fall in love more with Christ because I get to see who he is. So I'm going to pray to that end, that that's what the Lord would do for us this morning as we look at this text uh, in Matthew 12. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for your word. We know that every piece of your word is good and inerrant and sufficient and will not return void. And so I pray that as we look at this text that's about Jesus, which that's the best thing in the world. There couldn't be a better text um, than things about you. And that's what we want to do is focus in on who you are, your nature, your character, your glory, and your life that you had here and why you came. Um, and as we look at those things, I'm hoping that it would ignite for us a deep love for Jesus and be something that is a, that is a kickstart or a springboard as we go into real-life ministry throughout the week and as we go into tough times throughout the week where we ourselves need to be ministered to by your nature and character and we can also extend grace and love and, and mercy towards other people um, based on who you are. I pray that, that you would do those things for us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Wednesday, you may not know, uh, was Ash Wednesday. Some of you probably know what Mardi Gras means. That just means Fat Tuesday, which just means go do a lot of sin on that Tuesday, live it up in a fat, sinful way, and then on Wednesday, repent of all that thing and go for a 46 day of, so I'm not really big into Mardi Gras, if you can see, but go for a 46 day of kind of thinking on Christ, Ash Wednesday begins it into. And so that's, that was this past Wednesday. Um, if you're in Mardi Gras, I'm sorry. But anyway, uh, 
So, so that was this past Wednesday. And so I was thinking, you know what? It's kind of kind of Jesus as we're going into this, this season of what's traditionally known as Lent, where we focus in on specifically why Jesus came. And we think on even really for the next 46 days, his coming, why he was here, his ministry, his life, his death. And then on Easter, his resurrection. That's when Lent ends is on uh, Resurrection Day on Sunday. Uh, I thought it was awesome that as we're going through the kind of the beginning of this time that we get to look at a text that's just about Jesus and specifically why Jesus came. And I'm hoping that it's a great kickstart as you go into this season of Lent, whether you participate or not, you don't have to. Um, but it's really just a, a time where we think about what are some of the things that maybe we would want to abstain from. Maybe there's some fasting of something where you, and a focusing and a feasting. Fasting is always coupled with feasting. So we fast on things and we feast on Jesus. And so maybe you would want to do that. Now, um, one other thing that I want you to realize is that um, this text, Matthew 15 through 21, you can see but primarily in 18 through 21 is a large portion of quoted Old Testament scripture. And this this quote right here and from Isaiah chapter 42 and, and, that, and Isaiah 42 is known as some of the suffering servant quote. And so what Matthew's trying to do is he's been showing us these healing ministries of Jesus in 8, 9, 10, and 11. And he's saying those healing ministries that we've looked at in the previous chapters, I want you to understand the healing ministry of Jesus in light of the suffering servant, the one who comes and suffers. So as you're suffering and maybe you experience healing, you will experience one day final um, spiritual healing in Christ. I want you to understand all his healing ministry in light of the suffering servant. And so he's wanting to uh, explain that to us here. Now, I'm going to grab up to 14 and pull it into us in 15 because, again, it wasn't written with verses and chapter divisions. And 14 is kind of key for us as we're going into 15. You can see in 14, he had just healed a man that had a withered hand. And he healed him on the Sabbath, which, of course, the Pharisees were getting upset, but more so not just about the healing on the Sabbath, but they're thinking, Jesus, you're a blasphemer because you're claiming the authority to be able to interpret the Old Testament scriptures and heal. And that's what we're really more upset about is, is that. So it says in 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him and how to destroy him. We talked about verse 14 kind of being the the turning point for the rest of the book of Matthew, where up to that time, they're trying to follow him around, see if he can mess up, try to throw some accusations. And then 14 is really where he does this. And that's where for the rest of the book, we can see the plot now to destroy. They've gone from accusation to now we want to kill. It says in 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And obviously we all say, well, I don't think it's... Um, Right, and I, I'm pretty sure it's sinful on the Sabbath to plan to kill someone. So we can see the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in this moment where they're planning death for someone on the Sabbath and they're mad at Jesus for doing good and healing someone's hand. The hypocrisy screams out of verse 14 um, to us. Also, just one other kind of side note where we can see um, there has been massive evidence so far that just tells the Pharisees, um, the religious leaders at the time, this man Jesus is clearly the Messiah. Clearly, and they're so hard-hearted, they're so prideful, the, the sin of pride is, is um, so much a part of who they are that they are now opposing God himself. They're opposing God himself and trying to conspire to destroy Jesus. But we know, you know, take a big step back that this is the plan of God, but in there, um, to oppose God is sin. You shouldn't oppose God. Um, and so... They're plotting against him and they're knowing that they're going to destroy. So in 15, you can see Jesus aware of this. The, the this is the Pharisees are trying to kill me. 
I'm going to get out of here because the appointed time has not come yet. So it says Jesus, aware of this, and this is, I think, always funny, withdrew from there. So he's, he's obviously wanting to get away from people. Um, and it says, and many followed him. You know, just There is no respite for Christ always. There's always people following him, know who he is. And they followed him and the, the beautiful nature of Jesus. He's wanting to withdraw, wanting to maybe get some relaxation. And they follow him anyway. And then in his mercy, he still says he healed them all. I mean, this is just the continual way we see Jesus interacting with people. So kind, so compassionate towards people, which we're going to see as we get through into the Isaiah text there in just a second. And he ordered them not to make him known. Again, this is, we've talked about this before, but this is kind of that messianic secret that he's holding. Yes, I'm the Messiah. I don't want you to tell anybody I'm the Messiah yet. Um, it's coming. I'm going to go to the cross where everybody's going to know for all time that I'm the Messiah. But don't say because it's not time for me to go to the cross yet. It's not time. So he tells them not to um, make it known. And the reason why is, it says there in 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then we go into 18 through 21. Now, Matthew, we know that he's writing to the Jews. We've said this kind of over and over. And Matthew just quotes the Old Testament left and right all the time. He's always quoting the Old Testament, quoting the Old Testament. But in all the times he quotes the Old Testament, this time is the longest Old Testament quote that he uses his entire gospel. So it's pretty significant for him to use that much of the Old Testament where he's constantly doing it. So we want to um, center in on this text in 18 through 21 and see what is it that he's trying to tell us. And as we're looking at it, I'm going to hopefully be able to show us all four precious promises about our Messiah. Four precious promises about our Messiah that we're going to see in this quote where he quotes Isaiah. Um, and I'm hoping, I've said this already, I'm hoping that as you see these four precious promises about your Messiah, that just the awe and wonder of who he is and how good he is and his beautiful character and nature kind of jump off and that we're all just amazed and we want to worship. We want to let this be a, a, a centerpiece of, of something that leads us out into ministry this week. Maybe you're having a tough time in life and you'll see where there's lots of application. So we're going to go into uh, 18 and it says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. Um, in this first little section of the first half of 18, you're going to see three little words that God the Father um, through Matthew is is kind of putting on or describing his son Jesus with. And this, these are the three words he has. Um, he says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. This chosen is just a, a clear signification that the Father has chosen Christ. Um, and it says, From whom I have chosen, my beloved. This is um, the one I love, is another way to look at that. And whom my soul is well pleased. So we can see as the Father talks about Jesus, he says that he's chosen, he's beloved, and he's well pleased. Or the Father enjoys him. He's well pleased in him. So just a, a big obvious statement, which is this. If you want to delight in what God delights in, then look to Jesus. God the Father delights in His Son. If you want to delight in what God delights in, then delight in Jesus. Now, one interesting thing is that He says He's well-pleased. And if um, this little phrase, well-pleased, Matthew's going to use for us another couple times. He's going to use it in 317 where the baptism of Jesus, you remember where the Father says, this is whom I am well pleased. He's also going to use it in 17.5, which is later on, which is the transfiguration, where Jesus kind of shows his three disciples his glory. And in both of those instances, we hear a voice from the Father saying, this is whom I'm well pleased. And so that's, that's pretty important language here, where he's quoting 
Isaiah and saying that he is well pleased with his son. And then he says right after this, um, we're getting into the, the four things in just a minute, I promise you. And then right here he says, I will put my spirit upon him. Just showing us the source of the ministry of Jesus as he's going through this this time period of ministry that he has, these three years of ministry as he's walking around as a man. The source is the, is the spirit. Um, and for us, of course, the, our source is the spirit. And then, so that's kind of the, the intro. And now he's going to tell us four precious promises about the Messiah, about our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we see him, I'm hoping that it ignites just a deep love for him. It says this, And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, in these four things, um, we can look at them in kind of two different ways. Two things, I'm trying to think, how do these things about Jesus relate to the church? Well, the church can uh, do two of the things that are true about Jesus, and the church can model two things. I'm going to explain that in a second, but it says this. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. This, this, pro, this proclamation of justice is not just a proclamation in of itself, but it's also a bringing of it as well. So here's the first thing. This four precious promises about our Messiah. The first one is that Jesus brings final justice for all people. And you can see I put a little parenthesis and it says to all people. And what that means is for those of us that are in Christ, that are believers and We've been sinned against and people put us down or we're experiencing a lot of persecution and things like that. Our, our natural reaction is we want justice. And he's saying, um, I will bring final justice for you. You don't have to um, demand it in its finality. I am going to bring it. And when I say and to all people, for those that are outside of Christ who continually mock Christ and don't want him, he will bring final justice to them. And that's in the second coming where they are obviously um, cast out of his presence. And so Jesus brings final justice. Um, Now, this is something that the church can do as well. The church can bring not final justice. Don't hear me say final justice, but the church can bring justice. And sometimes you hear, at least if you kind of keep up with contemporary evangelicalism, there's a lot of talk about social justice and whether the church should or shouldn't. Of course, the church should engage in social justice. We should, and that just means Here's someone who's kind of the outcast of society. Society is mean to them or hurts them or harms them. We should want to engage them and bring to them some forms of justice. Now, we can't make that the gospel. We can't make that the good news that we're going to finally bring this to you. If if that's we say, we're going to bring the kingdom of God here right now in its finality, then we've not understood the end where that's where it's finally going to come is in the end. But in some, some forms, in some ways, we can... Um, exude or show or give justice to people. So when there's suffering people around you, you should want to, because we can be like Jesus in this way, bring justice to them. Although that is not final, final justice comes at the second coming where he will judge everyone. But this is the first thing about Jesus, that he brings final justice. Now, how does that, like, how does that help us today? I think that you can trust in the power of, of your king. Like, that's kind of a big way to say it. And like, I'm going to trust in the power of Jesus. That's huge to think about. Day to day, when, when sin is, is done against you and you kind of are, are experiencing suffering and you're hoping that one day um, that justice is, is going to be rightly administered, for you, it's going to be brought by Jesus. And you just have to trust that in his timing, in his second coming, it's finally going to come. But we serve a king who does not, who does not um, let things kind of go undone. All things will be made right. Justice will be brought by him. 
And so I think that's, that's, that's good news for us. And that can be scary sometimes as we think of people who will receive justice that aren't in Christ. And we just want them to meet Jesus. But we can rest knowing that our king is good and he will bring final justice. He will bring final justice. Um, and you can see specifically here that it says he's bringing it to the Gentiles. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show the difference of that in verse 21, but not yet. So don't go to 21. I'm just showing you that I'm going to do that. This is justice to the Gentiles or justice to people. And then in 19, it says this. Um, in 19, it says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. So now we're kind of focusing in on these three years of ministry that Jesus has as he's walking around and as he's interacting with people. This is not the second coming at all. This is how Jesus is going to carry himself in three years of ministry as he's going to the cross. Um, look at this, what it says. He says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now, this is only about his first coming. And this is the way I want to say it. Um, the second uh, precious promise or the second um, amazing thing about Jesus, however you want to word it, is that Jesus's ministry on earth was one of quiet humility. It was one of quiet humility. You can see he would not quarrel or cry aloud. Um, he was meek. He was gentle. He was humble. He didn't deal with his enemies in a way where he had desperate quarrelings with them in the streets or loud disputes. Whenever they said things, it was perfectly fine with him to let them say the things and go. There were some times, obviously, as we read through the scriptures, where he would he would kind of challenge some of the thoughts of the Pharisees. But on the whole, um, comparatively, especially to the second coming, uh, he. He did not have quarreling or loud cries in the streets. One, one commentator even said, uh, when it says there was not crying aloud or noise from people that followed him, he said that there will be great noise of worship to him one day. But even in his first coming, he kind of puts aside the worship that he's due and the, and the, the noise of his followers because he just kind of goes upon his, his three-year ministry, not quarreling, not crying aloud. And I think, let me, let me read you a text from Philippians 2 that this reminds me of, just as it talks about the humility that Jesus had as he's walking through doing his ministry. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So it's telling us to model the same humility Christ has. And it says about him, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by, become, by becoming obedient to the point of death. So Jesus, he did not quarrel. As a matter of fact, he willingly, and if you read the end, kept himself quiet and went to the cross for us. Willingly. He could have easily cast down hundreds of thousands of angels to just destroy everybody. He even says that, but he doesn't. He's meek. And he's gentle. And for us, as we're doing ministry, this is the way we should do it as well. We should be gentle with people and humble with people because Jesus was as well. Now again, this was his first coming. His second coming will be different. Um, now, as he's interacting with people, um, notice what it says in 20. 20 is kind of uh, going to start talking to us about how he interacts in, this, in light of this gentle humility that he has, how he interacts with those saints that have just had an amazingly hard time in life. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you've experienced um, 
more than your fair share of suffering than you, and you think. You've, you've experienced a lot of suffering in your life or you know someone who just seems to, you know, like there's some people I know, you're just like, that happened. Oh my goodness, that happened. How can that happen? And then you're like, does, does it ever stop? Is it going to keep on happening? Do they, are they going to keep on experiencing what seems to be amazing amounts of suffering? Um, or maybe someone who, who is struggling with belief. Uh, they, they want to believe, but because of the circumstances in their life, their belief in Jesus and their hope and their trust in him is so small. And look what it says. It's just going to describe them. It's going to be a little metaphorical. He's going to call them a reed and a wick. He says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Um, this is kind of how I think of it. Uh, you've got, I have children, uh, four of them. And they're all young. And so anytime we get anything nice, we can, we can put it up on there. And then we think, oh, that's awesome. And then, you know, within minutes or so, one of the kids comes and just kind of breaks it. And so it, what was, what seemingly was great, kind of falls over and you put it back up there. And it's like, it's got like a hinge in it now. It just won't stand. Like flowers, toys, you name it, they're going to break it. And that's just kind of like this is the way it is. And so you have, the, you have something up there. There seemed to be good. And all of a sudden, life just kind of comes and happens. Circumstances happen to them. And they're a little bit broken they're a little bit bruised they're a a flame that's starting to get where it's about to go out and because of the circumstances of life has has been happening to them um so a lot of commentators say as we're looking at 20 this verse is one of the most comforting verses in all of the bible in regard to how jesus interacts with us who are these bruised reeds who are these smoldering wicks this is for people that have been absolutely crushed by circumstances in their life. Um, sometimes it's from their own doing, from sinful choices. Sometimes it's from sinful things happening to them. They're tired, but just like the Beatitudes, they are also poor in spirit. They realize that they have to be, compl- they realize that I'm spiritually bankrupt and there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do here. And I'm realizing in my own wisdom that I am incapable of improving this situation. And the only way that it's going to improve is if I hope and trust in Jesus. And it's difficult right now because it's so hard right now and life is tough. Here's the third thing I want you to see. Those kinds of people that are so down and out. Here's the third thing about Jesus. Jesus is tender to them. He doesn't trample on the poor and the weak. He's tender to them. Wow, this is something that the church can model. This is something that I know I can model. There's so many times where I am so painfully blind to the sufferings of other people. I almost blow by it without even stopping and really asking them what's going on and how can I serve and how can I help. Really listening instead of like, mm, uh, yeah, looking, uh, yeah, oh, oh. really stopping and really listening and not being the kind that just kind of blows past them or just says like now sometimes whenever i was especially start counseling at first um my counsel was okay i heard all that now here's my counsel stop doing that (laughs) well that's not very helpful well i'm trying to help you like you're doing something bad and wrong don't do that anymore like that's not helpful how about a little compassion and mercy and we see this from jesus that he will not at all ever trample on those that are bruised reeds or smoldering wicks. As a matter of fact, uh, Psalm 34, 18 is kind of the way that he deals with it. It says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So if you're experiencing difficult times, one thing after another, 
after another or someone else is. Know that Jesus is tender towards you and doesn't trample on those who are bruised reeds. Now here's one thing I want to kind of clarify with you. Don't confuse this with John 15 too. It does not mean, John 15 too says that those whom he loves, he prunes. It doesn't mean that you won't receive sometimes painful pruning. Sometimes there is painful pruning in life where he wants you to bear more fruit. But whenever you are experiencing the bruised reed is kind of those suffering in life, those who are smoldering wicks are the ones that have kind of weak faith and your spiritual lamp is just kind of flickering. The picture of Jesus that he comes along that, that bruised reed and he takes his bindings and he binds you up. He doesn't break you and say, well, you're no good anymore. He binds you up until you are strong in him. Or if you're a flickering flame and your spiritual lamp is about to go out, he comes and he, he shows himself to you in such great majesty that you want to press into him. And that flame, he ignites and it just becomes a torch for his glory spreading his name and fame. And you can see that though this, tough life, this life might be tough, you start realizing, and I'm hoping that this might be some counsel for, for you who are, might be experiencing a lifetime of suffering or you know someone that is. Here's the thing. James says that your life is a vapor. Your suffering is short. Paul ca- calls our sufferings slight and momentary. Though they feel like hard and heavy and long, the truth is that they're slight and momentary afflictions which, which are uh, securing for us eternal weight and glory. So I'm hoping that Christ is speaking to you here and bruising you, and, and, I'm sorry, binding you up if you're a bruised reed and fanning into flame you if you're a smoldering wick. Um, D.A. Carson, as he's talking about this gentle nature of Jesus as he interacts with us, he says this, The servant, talking about Jesus, he's the suffering servant. The servant does not advance his ministry with such callousness to the weak that he breaks the bruised reeds or snuffs out the smoldering wick. Instead, he helps, like 936 says, the, the harassed and helpless. He helps, as 1028 says, those who have... Um, been working and are he- things are heavy and they're heavy laden on them. He comes to those and he's gentle and compassionate with them, never crushing them. And then it says in verse 20, after he describes how he interacts, it says, until he brings justice to victory. That's the way he's going to always promise to interact with you until he brings justice to victory. And what that means is this. As long as those who are, are repentant sinners are feeling bruised and smoldered, and the unrepentant, those who don't follow Jesus, are seemingly prospering, then justice has not had its final victory. And God is promising that 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 victory will be brought, that there one day will be a time where those who are feeling bruised and smoldered will not because He will be there for them and finally bind them up once and for all whenever we're with Him in heaven. I mean, that's, that's really good news for us who might be experiencing some extended suffering or even t- tough times in faith. Now, again, wh- what do I need to do from that, Fud? What's the application? That's tough. That's really tough. But I think that what you can know is that you can, um, if you're experiencing suffering, or if you know someone that is, share this verse with them that says, if you're a bruised reed, or you're a smoldering wick, your suffering's not in vain, and Jesus is there with you. He loves you and he wants you to look to him and realize that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushing spirit. Keep enduring. 
Keep enduring and hoping in Christ, praying that he will come and fan your flame into a torch for his glory. This is the amazing Savior that we serve. He's so good, so merciful, so compassionate. And as you look on that and think on that and dwell on that, I'm hoping that it ignites a desire for you to want to press into him even more and see him as glorious as he is and love him even more. Now, we're going to go into this fourth precious promise. And listen, this one's uh, a little technical at, at some points, but this is my favorite one. And I'm hoping that all of us, as we look at number four, would at the end just stand up and scream out, praise Jesus, at least in your heart. I'm hoping that you praise Jesus. If you actually do it, everybody will look at you. But I'm hoping that in your heart, you're going to stand up and say, amazing news, praise Jesus. All right, so let's look at it in 21. It says, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. All right, remember 18, it says, um, in 18 it says, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So the justice to the Gentiles are those who are unrepentant, who don't want to follow him, they will receive justice. But for those who are Gentiles that exercise repentance and faith, they get to, it says, in his name the Gentiles will hope. They get to exercise their hope or trust in him and they get salvation. They get to um, know God and be saved by him because of their faith in his work on the cross and the forgiveness that they receive um, because Jesus died for us on the cross in our place. So here's what I want you to see. Um, if you look at, and maybe some of you have already flipped over to Isaiah 42 and you've just been following Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, uh, one through, I think it's three, or maybe it's four, uh, is basically a word for word uh, pretty much matching all the way as we're looking at Matthew 12, 18 through 21, with one exception. Um, this verse 21 is not the same kind of wording as it is in Isaiah 42. This one's a little bit different. And in Matthew 12, 21, it says, And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. And Isaiah 42, that phrase actually says, And the coastlands will wait for his law. The coastlands will wait for his law. And here it says, In his name, the Gentiles will hope. Those are pretty different. On first blush, on first glance, those are seemingly different. But we're all, or at least I am, and I'm hoping we all believe in the inerrancy of the, of the Scriptures, the sufficiency of the Scriptures, and we're operating on a verse, Second Peter one twenty one, that says, as the writers wrote, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, which means if the writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote, then the Holy Spirit is telling them... Um, the ways in which they should think and write, and with their own personality, they're writing down the very words of God with their own personality and things like that. But every word in here is true. And so if Matthew is carried along by the Holy Spirit, then what he writes in 21 is absolutely God's words, even though it's different than, than Isaiah 42. So the question isn't to say, well, those are just different. There's a mistake in the Bible. Then the right thing to say is they're different. How can I understand them so that I can even be more understanding of the gospel and how beautiful Jesus is? So that's what we're going to do right here. It's going to feel a little technical, but I'm hoping, at least it did for me this week when I was studying, it got me pretty excited and I want to jump up and scream hallelujah. So I'm hoping that that's going to do that for you. And here's the thing. Um, I'm going to kind of break it down phrase by phrase so you can see. In Isaiah 42, it says, the coastlands wait for his law. So this word coastlands, as it's being translated, uh, can also mean 
ethne or ethnic groups and generally that means gentiles so that's pretty easy to see when it says the coastlands um, will wait for his law it's talking about the coastlands that's where the gentiles are that's who they are one, one little side note i forgot to tell you this um, as the old testament was written it was written in hebrew and then finally as that old testament book you know was finally made from genesis all the way to second chronicles that it's second chronicles is the last book in the hebrew version i know ours is malachi but it's actually second chronicles so from genesis to second chronicles as it's written then the writers looked at that hebrew version and as kind of time went on they looked at it and they said we're going to translate the hebrew into greek and so they they translated into greek now as the new testament writers are writing they're looking at the hebrew version which is known as the masoretic you don't need to know that and as they're looking i don't know why i said it so they're looking at the uh the greek version which is known as the septuagint uh, and that Septuagint just means 70 because they believe 70 people translated it from Hebrew to Greek. And the New Testament writers, here's the key. New Testament writers, as they're writing about Jesus and they quote the Old Testament, they're free as they quote to quote both the Hebrew and the Greek versions. And both are right. And so what Matthew's doing here as he's quoting, he doesn't look at the original Hebrew. He looks at the Greek translation, which is still the word of God, because this is the word of God we have in English, and quotes the Greek version of it. And so... That's why there's a little bit of difference here. But I'm hoping that we're going to see it. So we have, we have the coastlands, which means ethne, which means Gentiles. Now, the next thing we see is, and the coastlands wait. They wait. Well, in, in Isaiah, it's wait. And here, it's hope. And so we can see that's pretty much the same thing. Wait is to look forward to a Hebrew idiom. If you're waiting for something, it's that you're putting your hope into it. You're hoping that it's going to happen. You're trusting you're exercising hope and faith in. So here's the same thing. So um, in his name, the Gentiles, hope. Uh, so the only thing that we have now is name. We have in the coastlands wait for his law. And here it says, and in his name. Well, in the Hebrew, it is, it is the word law. It's the Torah, the teaching. Um, but as they translated it, they decided to take this word teaching and say name. Not just things about him like his teachings, but Really, the essence of who he is in, in the Old Testament, the essence of who you are, I am who I am. This is my name. So it's not just this, it's his name, it's who he is. And so he's saying here that in his name, the Gentiles are going to hope. So that's how Matthew pulls it forward. And he says, so as we're talking about Jesus and this coming teachings and it's going to go out to the coastlands, all that really is about Jesus. It's about Jesus and the fact that Jesus is going to be put forward as the, the Messiah to everyone and everyone who wants to be saved has to put their hope, has to put their faith in Jesus and his name and who he is and what he's done for us. Now, this is not a small thing. This is not a small thing at all. If we look over at the Old Testament and we kind of take one little giant step back and look at the meta narrative or the big story of the Old Testament from Genesis to the end um, of the Old Testament, we see, okay, one thing's for sure. God has a chosen people and those people are the Jews. And those people that aren't the Jews, who aren't the people of, of God, the Israelites, they don't get salvation. As a matter of fact, usually they get put to death. There's a couple stragglers of Gentiles that get in there, and they're kind of the lucky ones. But on the whole, the Gentiles are not part of the family of God. They are the ones who are condemned continually and continually. But here, what we're seeing is that in the New Testament, God and his mercy and his graciousness has decided that what he's going to do now is broaden the scope of who gets to be into the family of God. It's not just the Jews anymore, but now 
Every, and this is good news, I'm assuming, for every single one in this room who are the Gentiles. God has said, every single one of you are now getting, I'm going to broaden the scope from not just the Gentiles, but everybody can be a part of the family of God. He's also now saving the Gentiles too. Every single one of us gets to experience life with God, knowing Christ and experiencing this Forgiveness of sin that we all desperately want. None of us who are Gentiles now have to die in our sin. But we can know God through Christ. We can receive salvation. And I think every one of us just wants to scream, Hallelujah, praise God, we get to get saved. I mean, this is amazing news that every one of you now, because of the sovereignty of God and this glorious decision, get to be included into it. This is a precious promise and a characteristic of him that he is kind even towards the filthy dog Gentiles. That's how we're described. I'm not just saying that. Now, here's the most amazing part, okay? Can you just imagine... Matthew, writing to Jews who knew this. Salvation is for the Jews. He's writing this to people who are Jewish, constantly quoting the old, their own scriptures, and then keeps painting the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees in the time, in dim light or in poor shades. And then he, he has this man, Jesus, who's kind of jumping off as the Messiah, and he says, now this salvation is for Gentiles as well. There's a lot of weight in that verse, a lot of weight where Matthew is telling everyone salvation is for the Gentiles as well. Every single one of us can now hope in his name and receive salvation because of his work on the cross. That is a beautiful truth about Jesus. He came and died for you and for me, even though we're not in the Jewish, Israelite, direct line, family of God, we are now adopted and engrafted into the family. And we can, along with them, say, Abba, you're my daddy, my father, because of Christ. Beautiful good news. And I'm just hoping that that alone amazes us. So as we go into our time of response, as we think about Jesus, um, what I want us to do is absolutely think about the fact that Jesus will bring final justice to those who suffer. That he is the one who was quiet and humble as he ministered, did not raise his voice, did not call down angels to kill everyone, but willingly went to the cross for us. That he's tender to those who are brokenhearted. For those that are experiencing extended suffering, he deals with you in such a tender-hearted way. But also, let's stand and worship this great king who widened the scope of salvation, not just to include the chosen race of Israel, but for every single one of us. Let's stand and give him the glory and sing out to him in this time of worship. And let that be something that sends us out to live lives of worship the rest of this week, that we are a part of the people of God because of His precious promise and His greatness towards us, His mercy towards sinners like us. And we get to hope in that and trust in that and that we are part of the coastlands that hope in His name, the Gentiles. I'm going to pray and then we'll turn it over to uh, Ben as we worship through song. And I just invite you to stand and, and sing out to Him all the glory that's due His name. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. 
God, I thank you for a text that um, is not really about us at all, but about Jesus and who he is and how great he is. I pray that, Lord, as we enter into this time of reflection, moving us forward to where we celebrate Easter, where we celebrate your death, burial, and resurrection, that we'll think on why you came. Why did you come? You came to save sinners. You came to um, secure more glory for yourself by saving wretched sinners like us, including us in on the family of God, in bringing your name more glory. Be with us now as we get to be a small piece and part of what's going on in heaven right now where worship is being given to you. We get to stand and sing with the angels right now that are already singing your praises. We get to join that and sing your praises right now. What an honor to sing to our glorious King. We love you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.